Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. What was your special order? You read it. I thought it was clear. What was it? Bring back life form. Priority one. All other priorities rescinded. From the distant moon of LV-426. To the other distant moon of LV-223. We are Halloweenies. This is Alien. You are with the Halloweenies aboard the spaceship Nostromo. Something has gone wrong. One by one, the crew has vanished into days of research, and somewhere in that research, a terrifying creature waits to claim its next victim. Warning! Remain with this podcast. The episode you are entering is extremely entertaining. Proceed and enjoy. Greetings, trick-or-treaters, campers, dreamers, suspects, deadites, friends to the end, and space jockeys. I'm Lieutenant Wolfman Mack, one of your four crew members who will be leading you on this expedition through Ridley Scott's Alien. The film changed the landscape of the science fiction thriller and would spawn several sequels, which honestly is why we're here today. And over the following year, we'll be talking about it. I'm so uh, incredibly thrilled to be here. This movie is near and dear to my heart. First time I recall seeing this was at my house in Orlando. I was probably eight years old, as my parents still thought we needed a babysitter. So honestly, I'm inclined to go younger than that. I remember because we were about to pop Alien in to watch, and my babysitter, God bless them, was like, nah, bro. So we had to call our mom, who was then like, yes, I give them permission. We've rented Alien for them to watch today. So we proceeded to watch it in like the middle of the afternoon. Now we had these like blackout curtains. I knew we drew, hopped on the sofa. And I don't remember being, I don't remember being scared. I'm sure I was, but I just really remember moments that like still trigger me today in like the best way. 
Needless to say, I was a fan for life. But I'm not the only one here. As I said, we've got our own little crew here on the commercial Starship Halloweenies, or as I lovingly call it, the USCSS Weenie. Let's go around the dinner table here. Please introduce yourselves and tell us the first time you experienced Alien. Let's go. What, let's hop over to uh, someone that lives uh, really close to me right now. <laughs> oh, interesting. Well, we do come from the same city, and I'm glad to be here aboard the Nostromo. This is Michael Mother Rothman. Oh. Just was scanning Wikipedia trying to figure out if I could do a different <laughs> nickname. I feel like we can't say Whalen Yutani, right? Because that doesn't really pop up until Aliens. So I was going to go Whalen Rafmani or something, but you oh no, we could do it. it. We could do you it. You see it on I like a logo this, on a, the drink there. Had they had okay. at the table? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the logo is also on some of the computers uh, and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, you know what? Then let's do it. This is going to be my name this year, Michael Whalen Rafmani. <laughs> here to talk about one of my favorite franchises, and I know you always say that. I feel like. It sounds redundant, but you know we've gone through franchises. This is our seventh, and I feel like every first episode, I'm always like, you know what? This is like my favorite franchise. <laughs> but I, I think I was talking to Caffrey about this when we were uh, here for the Christine event. But I'm so excited about this because I can't think of a larger franchise beyond what we've done to cover right now. I mean, we did Indiana Jones on the the Patreon. We've done Halloween. But this is just a different level. And I think there is excitement as much as there is anxiety tied to this one for me. Mm. Just because I, I just, this kind of takes it to, yeah, not to sound redundant, but just another level. And I, I think for me, it's been so entrenched in my mind that I, I don't really remember the first time I watched it, though I do remember the first time I was scared from this franchise. And that, and I was really racking my brain. I even asked my dad, I was like, well, you know, did we watch Aliens first? Did we watch Alien? And he didn't have an answer. And so <laughs> I, I see him just being like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. He does like, I remember like really like after we finished recording it, Last Crusade, and I was like, Dad, you know, remember that time we went to go see Crusade together? And it was just such a great afternoon. He's like, I don't remember that. And I was like, okay, well, anyway, <laughs> it's like wiping my tears and be like, no, I'm, I sure, I'm sorry, Dad. But with Alien, I do remember vividly like, seeing the, the the stuffed animals underneath my dresser. There's like, there's a dresser and then I had shelves. And I remember being terrified at night that there is something above, like underneath the shelf and it was staring at me just like in the ending of this movie. So that image of just, you know, the xenomorph huddled away as, as Ripley's about to, you know, take off in the shuttle. I think that really stuck with me. And since then, I, you know, obviously with Aliens and Alien 3, like I, I've just been obsessed with this series, even when it gets into some of the the, the valleys, as we'll discuss. But uh, anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying, can't wait for my favorite franchise. Yeah. You, sh- yeah, no, you sure it wasn't... A- you sure it wasn't E.T. in your stuffed animals? Honestly, it probably was a mixture oh. of that. You know, that's a good call. That is a good call. Yeah. Yeah. And who and who is that that just piped up? <laughs> hey, it's Rachel Ripley Reeves. And I have butterflies, you guys. Like I'm so excited. <laughs> I've got my crew jacket on. Yeah. And I saw it. That's cool. So, yeah. I hope it's I'm, not uh, a chest burster. And you might think it's butterflies. Maybe it's Oh my god. Oh, oh no. Maybe it's the Sony. fluttering in the egg. Yeah. I was really hungry this morning. So so I guess we'll see what happens. But yeah, I, I, I cannot believe we're here. I cannot wait to traverse through these films with y'all. And 
I did not see this till I was in high school, and it was a pretty like transformative film experience for me because I grew up in a Star Trek Star Wars household, mm-hmm. and so I had never seen something like this. So when I saw this, I was like, wait, this came out like the same year, basically, as Star Wars? What? Wait, the Star Trek movie came out like right after? Like the, the fact that this was existing in the same <laughs> space as those films, I found mind blowing because it just looked so different and had such a different feel. And so I just, it just opens up so many doors for me and I found it terrifying. And I mean, Ripley, oof. I mean, we're, we're going to get into her, but this, yeah, I, I remember the first time I watched it and was just so blown away and have continued to be blown away by this film and this franchise. Awesome. And uh, who, who, who else is, is left here around the dinner table? Uh, are you hungry? Are you a hungry boy as well? <laughs> this is Dan Dallas Caffrey. I'm not hungry because I saw what happened to my friend Kane and I lost <laughs> my appetite. How'd you see that? <laughs> well, because we were sitting. Well, because no one used Kane as a nickname, right? So, so we're all. We the alien came out of the chest, and instead of going to find it, we're all just sitting here and talking about it instead. Uh, okay, and, yeah. Uh, so we were like, it was like old hat to us. We, old, the alien yeah, came out, no ran deal. off, and now we're all sitting around just chatting. <laughs> you could have done the alliteration with the Kane Caffrey, though. You know? I was going to, but yeah. I, I no joke. I was like furiously debating that in my head last night. <laughs> it's like yeah. Dan Kane Caffrey, or Dan Dallas Which way Caffrey. Do I go? Doug, you could do first name alliteration or, or last name. <laughs> Way before I saw Alien, my uncle Scott, my dad's younger brother, he had the 18-inch Kenner Xenomorph that came out when wow. this. Uh, yeah, he still has it. Things worth a lot it's of money. Worth you can a actually, ton. yeah. He, it's funny. This my grandma. He lives with his mom, my grandmother, and uh, I don't. I don't think she would care that I'm saying this. She's struggling with some memory issues now, and she keeps taking like these expensive ass toys of his and like putting them in the kids' oh. playroom, like where my son plays. And so I was with Boone. I looked over and I'm like, why is the alien up here? And I told my uncle and he's like, Jesus Christ, like, <laughs> like mom, don't, you know, I, I'm like, yeah, that could have, I mean, it's, it's worth hundreds of dollars. Oh no, thousands. It's in the thousands now. Right. That, yeah. Wow. It's, it's fucking crazy. the box too. It's crazy. But I was just sitting Man. there with like Boone's shitty preschool toys, you know? And yeah, so I knew what that was and that was, it was from a movie called Alien. And then it was interesting as I read comics growing up, I feel like I would see not the alien, but I would see that style, the biomechanics or, you know, whatever, or uh, bioorganic, whatever guy Giger calls it i would see that influence on a lot of like advertisements for like dungeons and dragons and other games i saw aliens first and honestly i don't think it had anything to do with the violence or any of that i think my dad just thought oh if you're an eight-year-old kid you'll enjoy this one more because it's more action-oriented and aliens does weirdly kind of work standalone they catch you up to everything that's happened so after we saw aliens I remember saying, oh, let's do Alien now. And my dad was just like, nah, it's kind of slow. You're not going to like it <laughs> as a mm. kid. And then it was on you know, USA or something like that. And I would catch pieces of it here and there. And I think like a year later, I finally watched the whole thing. And I won't say where it is in my rankings, but I mean, Alien is a not just a perfect organism, perfect movie, in my opinion. Oh. And yeah, I talked on, I know on the preview and horror about how excited I am to cover this and why. So go back and listen to that if you want to be. I'm very, very excited to be here and embark on this journey through deep space uh, today. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you, everybody. I think it's safe to say we're all fans in general <laughs> an, here. And uh, an Apone sticker on your mic, too, which is cool. I know we're not I in do. that movie Look yet, into my very eye, cool. y'all. Yeah, uh, here we go. We're starting. Uh, <laughs> Wait, who's well, Apone? 
we'll 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 get there. We'll get there next month. We just act like we uh, have no knowledge of the other movies. That would be <laughs> yeah. kind of cool, like having to. Yeah, keep I don't it know what this fucking live. sticker is. I'm gonna take it off. Yeah. Speaking of fans, which we all are, uh, one thing fans do is investigate rumors and if there's any possible news on an upcoming alien film or TV series. So this is rumor control. Here are the facts. Once again, this is rumor control. Here are the facts. So this is where we're going to be talking about the news, any news on the alien franchise in general. And now we know that Betty Alvarez of Evil Dead fame is directing alien tentatively titled Romulus, I believe. The seventh film in the franchise due to be released right now, August 16th, 2024. Crosses fingers. The film that takes place apparently between alien and aliens. So a good chunk of time not explored by the film. What do, what do we all think about this so far? I'm excited. I, I got excited about, well, no, but this was the TV show. I was going to say, because that was Noah Hawley who talked about keeping the technology right. more in line with what's in this movie, right? Then with mm-hmm. Prometheus and Covenant, despite them taking place well before everything. So forget what I said, but <laughs> I remain excited because <laughs> there's not, there hasn't been any, yeah, there's like no update yeah, updates right now. There's been a lot of updates. We, Does anybody have any it, other updates on Romulus? I have nothing I, on I haven't the, heard Tight lips. I think the last thing yeah. was the cast. And yeah, we talked about it a lot in the preview episode and just like, oh, the possibilities. Like, I, I don't know what they're going to do with this. I don't know who these people are. But I'm putting a lot of faith in Alvarez because yeah. I, I do like a lot of what he's done in the past. So I'm like, all right, come on. Don't disappoint me, Fede. Like, I, I, I'm putting a lot of faith in him because I do like what he's done in the past. So we'll see. Yeah. I, I also like the idea, sorry, Dan, I also like the idea yeah. that, you know, obviously Ridley Scott came back and did Prometheus and Covenant, whatever. But, like, it's kind of, it's cool having some new eyes behind it some fresh takes and young younger too yeah mike well that reminds me of just kind of the original run where that's what i was gonna say yeah. you know you used to get it's, it's kind of like what honestly mission impossible started doing and then they kind of derailed with Macquarie taking over everything and i think that's kind of the reason why i'm a little more excited about this is because you know even when ridley scott said he was coming back for prometheus sure all of us are excited but there was a part of me that was like especially after Prometheus, where I was like, ah, I kind of want to go back to the the sort of what is the filmmaker going to take from it? Like, Caffrey, you mentioned something in our preview episode about how, like, this is the most, this is the, the, the best franchise in the sense of being able to tackle different themes with different IP and, like, you know, with, with the IP. And I think that's what makes it so interesting when you get a new filmmaker tied to it. So I, I am kind of interested to see what Alvarez is going to do. I think my expectations are fairly low just because, I mean as we'll discuss all year, this franchise has uh, some interesting uh, lows <laughs> that <laughs> I think have certainly been more recent. And and honestly, in the la- I mean, in, in terms of just like, when you look at this, the halfway mark of this franchise, it's definitely front loaded. So I'm hoping that we yeah. get a real good, you know, diamond in the rough with this one. And yeah, Rachel, I mean, Alvarez is pretty reliable. I mean, I, I, I think with the, the sense of, gore that he likes to bring to the table that's what i think really excites me about what we're going to see here because he's always making me go like oh my god i can't believe he's doing that on screen which hey that's what the original did yeah and practical he does a lot of practical stuff too which i think will be i i really hope they go that direction and kind of steer away from i mean there's going to be cgi obviously but we'll see maybe he'll lean more on the practical side of stuff I know we're yeah. not on the cast of this movie yet, which we'll talk about a lot in just a bit, but I would say of 
once we get past Alien 3, I feel like they're putting, and even with Alien 3 a little bit, I feel like they're putting a lot of star bankability into their movies. Even Prometheus, it's like, oh, Idris Elba, Charlize Theron, Michael Fassbender, these kind of it people of that era. Mm-hmm. And then the first Alien, I wouldn't say all of them were complete unknowns at the time, but you didn't have like a megastar, yeah. I think, anchoring everything. And I have no experience with any of these actors that Fede Alvarez has put in the film, so I'm not speaking like, oh, they're awesome actors, but I do like that we're getting kind of a faceless cast a little bit again. Rewatching this movie reminded me of that, of, oh, there is like an everydayness to this film and a working classness to this film. I have no idea if Fede Alvarez is looking to do the same thing, but I am excited about that, that we're not getting Jennifer Lawrence or someone in an early movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she'd probably be good. Chris Pratt. I, I didn't no, see Chris that. Pratt. Who, who has been cast in this? Kelly Spanning, who it's it's big. I mean, that's that that's a big casting in the sense that it's just totally. Oh, Priscilla, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, but that's, that's true. Like, okay, but, okay, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But that still sticks, Dan, because you know yeah. she's still relatively unknown, and I kind of love it that she's coming off of. Uh, I don't think she'll win the Oscar, but like, or I don't even know if she'll get nominated at this point, given the how crazy the the, the race is this year. But it's exciting to see someone have that sort of star critical power to come into a genre picture, which I actually think really does mirror alien in many ways. As yeah. we'll discuss. So. When, yeah. And even w- it, it, it might be like a Jenna Ortega situation where it was like, they almost got lucky. They cast her in scream, right? Yep. Because right. she, she took off like before the movie came out, but they'd already wrapped up before she was famous. So yeah. I mean, and obviously this movie made a star of Sigourney Weaver, but yeah, it could be cool if it like does something like that for one of these people. I, f- I totally forgot she was in Priscilla and probably going <laughs> to get nominated. There's only one thing that, I brought this up when we were watching Alien on Friday, and I said yeah. that uh, if this happens, I this is going to be a Halloween 2018 oh, no. situation again for me. If it turns out that Kaylee Spaney is like playing like Amanda Ripley, I'm walking out of the theater. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, the only, do reason, the only reason I think they won't do that is because they kind of tried to do this weird thing in covenant where it was kind of very mm-hmm. like oh we're gonna you know have um ripley you know, too watterson kind of you know, with the short hair and like the white you know like emulated a lot of like ripley-esque yeah. stuff and i just don't know if they're gonna do that but you're, they could. you're the new ripley yeah well we'll see maybe we'll see. maybe like instead david johnson uh, is cast who's one of the cast members is actually playing Austin as as opposed to Dallas. God, oh God. So there's Houston. also a television series yeah. in development, <laughs> <laughs> which is elmed by Noah Hawley of Fargo and Legion fame. Hey, there was some news recently saying that he would, like Dan was just saying, would not be acknowledging the Prometheus backstory. He's going much more toward the look and feel of the first two films where technology has been developed, but it ain't Prometheus-level tech, <laughs> which is still bizarre to me. He was saying, too, like, oh, Ridley and I talked about this. Like, I cleared it with him, and I was like, did you? I, I don't know, because it sounded kind of Honestly, insulting toward I Prometheus. I think so, because all yeah. he would probably be saying is, I really want to make it like your first movie. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so he's going to be like, oh, yeah, sure, you know. He's like, fuck off. Just <laughs> this is also kind of like generally largely unknown cast, you know? I mean, Timothy Oliphant was just cast recently, That's which is hook. probably the biggest name, right? Which to me feels like he's going to be killed in the first episode, right? I hope it's going to be like a lost gonna, situation, it, right? He's going to be like a captain and then get killed right off. Uh, yeah. It'd be cool if he was the lead, man. Oliphant's awesome. Yeah. I, I'm just like, I have like shivers of the like Michael Wincott future, but hopefully... <laughs> He sticks around for the whole thing. 
maybe he'll be like the new bishop or something. And like, then he'll really be around for the whole thing because people love yeah. good android. Yeah, you're the new bishop. <laughs> so you're the new bishop. It'd just be cool if he was just playing Raylan. Is that justified? Oh, we modeled, yeah. we modeled, uh, we modeled the Android off of Justified's Rayland because uh, the like audiences Wayland. loved him. You know? yeah. Rayland, Wayland, Rayland, He's, Utami. Oh, you're right. Oh, and and good luck to everybody for, that will be mixing up Ridley and Ripley for this entire episode. Mm. Oh, thoughts ah, damn on it, right. I, like look? I didn't think about I, it. Yeah, I like a lot of Fargo. I liked the first season of Legion. I think it sometimes you can tend to get really kind of, you know, down the route of Hannibal season three and very just in its daydream universe that loses its own thread and then somewhere in there is saying something about culture. <laughs> I'm very like, this is something I haven't seen him do at all though. So I'm kind of like, okay, what do you, well, how are you going to do that with the alien? You know what I mean? Like, so, and because it's so future based, I, I don't know. I have a feeling like, you know, you're going to have to go to links to say stuff like that, you know, where, where Legion was at least, you know, still based in a, some semblance of reality and you can still comment on politics and government and all that. So I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see what he does. Opti- cautiously optimistic. Mm-hmm. Are they connected to the movie at all? Like the TV show? Or are they just completely separate? Do we know? I think they're separate completely. Right. I haven't heard any kind of connective tissue talk. I imagine they're canon. Uh, like I, I, I oh yeah uh, yeah probably yeah, yeah. what if but they're just like we're gonna do an alien <laughs> series <laughs> and it's not about the first movie and it's also not connected to the franchise it's like not what? prometheus <laughs> like, not, yeah well the, the reason why i was confused with this because it said that the show is to take place on earth in the not too distant future yeah so yeah. like interesting how okay. do you do that what like alien already existed on earth and People just didn't know about it, or is it all going to be like, like the thing? Like it's going to be like facility based. But I'm like, kind of already did that with AVP, so I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm very curious what this is going to be. You know, is it like the Martian, where it's like the home base and just like what they're doing to react to yeah, whatever's yeah. happening in space. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you know Holly loves to stick about eight different narrative arcs in his uh, his you know. His, season so i'm sure we'll have at least one story that works and we'll find out in that first first episode i sorry i just finished fargo season five i think it is and i just finished it too yeah yeah and you know it's just it's just some really cool stuff that's that's in that season i was really in i think juno temple's fucking phenomenal in it but like Uh Uh good god it's still the same problem it's just like why did you have all these four three or four other arcs that just added so many episodes like so that that's the only thing i guess that concerns me the thing about alien that maybe could be somewhat of a switch here or a subversion. I don't even know. Just something different is if you did actually expand the narrative in a way that we don't really necessarily have it in the franchise. I mean, like from the get go, it's always been sort of this haunted house movie, right? So if you do have it where it's this sort of serialized story, I'm just, I'm wondering what that means. Are you just going to have like, you know, a bunch of science, like if, because like Prometheus is somewhat like that because it is very episodic and just insane with aliens and in the sense of where the you know people are in different areas of that one location. But I don't know if it's going to be set around Earth. Like I don't know, we're going to have like a bottle episode in like in like the UK or <laughs> like it's yeah. like Last yeah. of Us where they're like talking about different strands or something. I don't know. It's just I'm very. I guess this is this is just a a watch and see uh, for me. Yeah. 
I'm sure episode three will be a bottleneck with starring Meryl Streep and it'll just be about a scientist like discovering some alien strange. I, I don't know, you know. Honestly, it's kind of wild that we can even pretendly you know, like to posit that episode because it, stuff like that exists now. You know, know. Like back in the mm-hmm. day, like you could like Meryl Streep in a third episode of what you know stuff like that. It's just kind of wild. I just hope at one point in the series, it doesn't even have to be the first season. It could be in the second season. The xenomorph confronts the you know the the lead. And they all kind of start dancing a little bit, you know? Maybe oh, some, you like, think, disco oh, light like a, comes down. And well, that would be cool because they'd be, like, not done that ever. Like, no. <laughs> to just break out into, like, a dance sequence in, like, a fourth or fifth episode. And yeah. then, like, but everyone doesn't really, like, acknowledge that they're doing this dance no, sequence. Yeah. Hey, all rehearsed. Well, there is the Alien the Musical, right? So, oh. you know, maybe it's, like, a self-aware kind of meta thing where they're like, you know what? We're going to give you that musical you've wanted. <laughs> what if we're yeah. uh, with someone on a spaceship, they're like a space captain, and then... They're really stressed out about what the aliens do on the ship, and so they go, oh, "I need to go to my special place." And they go in their office and they put on Kokomo by the Beach Boys, and Uh-oh. we see him dance around to you it. Know, you know, I'll, I'll give it the the once in a lifetime Kokomo exception. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, we already that would be twice in a lifetime because another show already did that. Maybe yeah. the Xenomorph will turn it like uh, like Bob, and he'll put the music on and be mm. like, "Oh, that'll like be human. cool." Let's I mean, in, in a lot of the Dark Horse comics, they do have aliens starting to do kind of... They they go down a bub route a little bit. To do dances? Admin. Not dancing, but just doing oh, more... Oh, heat. well, oh, you mean like... Uh, I gotcha. There is one called Music of the Spears where there's this avant-garde composer who sees an alien attack. Because in the comics, the aliens have come to Earth and that that's mm-hmm. like a big outbreak on Earth. And uh, he's trying to record the sounds of a xenomorph killing someone and putting it into his music because he's obsessed with it. It's pretty cool. Uh, oh, yeah, interesting. I enjoy it. Yeah, it's called Music of the Spears. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that we haven't really considered is uh, there's another franchise. Who knows if we'll ever cover it? I know Caffrey would, would love it if we did. But in one franchise that we saw recently that added three more chapters to it, they became friends with the the great villain from the original, and that's Blue from Jurassic World. So maybe the Xenomorph <laughs> becomes kind of like a, a sidekick in the Holly series Whoa, and just add some quips. Like- hatches an egg and it's like nurture versus nature uh, yeah <laughs> i'm telling you man in, in those comics they try to train them like it's a it's a thing so it's not out of the realm of, look there's more stories to tell yeah hey, anything I'd is be possible down, i'd be down if like an alien crash landed in like prehistoric times and like it was just followed him and there's no dialogue and he just makes friends with blue and then the predator shows up and <laughs> And it all takes yeah. place in like 1994, <laughs> so then you could have kind of references, to like you know, uh, Blind Melons playing, and he's like, "This is a good song," or you know, and we're like, "Oh, remember <laughs> that? Remember the 90s?" <laughs> like, remember reminds the 90s, me of for remember? all mankind, but uh, yeah, that's anyway. a whole other thing. So <laughs> now that we know what's possibly happening in the future of the franchise, <laughs> it's time to go back. I've just received the keys to the kingdom of information that is. So join me while we visit the Weyland-Yutani archive. It's a star map. No, not a map. An invitation. From whom? So the Weyland-Yutani archive is where we'll be discussing the pre-production, production, and post-production on the Alien film. Now, across everybody here, I know we've scoured tons of resources, but I've got to give a big shout out to like, you know, the Rensler making of book, the making of on all, all of the extra features on the Alien Quadrilogy DVDs. There's uh, the, the Yadorowski Dune film. That, I mean, there's so many resources and so many things that we've done and seen and looked at. Just want to throw that out there. Those are all great resources and things you should check out. that are still available, some on eBay. Getting down to it, Alien. 
premiered May 25th, 1979. The film's directed by Ridley Scott. Here's the synopsis. If you have it, if you don't know it already, <laughs> the crew of the commercial starship Nostromo has awoken from cryosleep halfway through their journey home to investigate a distress call on a nearby planet. The crew has just brought back something on board that may spell certain doom for them and the rest of the world should it make it back home on the long journey. The story of Alien, though, begins with Dan O'Bannon. O'Bannon grew up in the Midwest with a sanitized version of the world. And when you grow up in a controlled environment, you look for the strange and fellow strangers out there. And uh, you want to experience the beyond. And, you know, he did because he became friends with John Carpenter while attending USC. And while there, the two of them decided to catch George Lucas's THX 1138. They were inspired by his move to make this short film into a feature film. So the both of them were like, oh, we, we could do this. Carpenter had the directorial eye, and Bannon was the wild idea man. Soon they put their heads together and started to work on Dark Star. That's right, Dark Star. Everybody seen that movie? Yeah, sorry, I, th- I didn't know you were waiting for us to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is he going to say it? Yeah, no, definitely. I have, it's goofy. <laughs> I love Dark Star. I like Dark Star. My my hot take is that I like Dark Star better than Assault and Precinct 13, but that's... That is uh, uh, fucking insane. Uh, okay. <laughs> that's, a podcast, that's a podcast for another day. Wow. I, I, I just watched it again last night. So I was up and I was like, you know what? I want to watch Dark Star again. And I forgot how short it is. Like, yeah, it's like 70 minutes. Right? It's, like, yeah. it's like over before it begins, but it's so much. It's, it's, it is, yeah, it is, it's a very weird movie, I will say. But I, I got a lot of thoughts on the Carpenter aspect of it eventually. But Yeah, it's kind of wild to think if we didn't have Dark Star, we wouldn't have Alien. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, because it kind of boils back to that for many reasons, which we'll get into. But look, all the while, having fun with the film... O'Bannon kept thinking that, you know, what if we took this more seriously? You know, I mean, the, the alien is a beach ball, okay? <laughs> I mean, it, he was like, it, what if this thing was actually scary, like really scary? So he started writing what ended up being like a 20-page script, a, a little 20-page draft. Now, let me know if this sounds familiar. It's called Memory. It's a terror science fiction story about a small mining ship which lands on a planetoid after intercepting a broadcast message in an unknown alien language. After they land, the computer succeeds in translating the message, and the message is, do not land, (laughs) basically. Now, if you've seen enough science fiction films, you could probably rattle off three or four films that have the same premise, and you'd be correct, because a lot of those films and those B-movie films, which I saw some of those very recently, I mean, one I just watched the other day was Forbidden Planet with Leslie Nielsen, Mm. whose grave we visited in Fort Lauderdale, thanks to Mike. And he's really great in that film. At this point, the alien creature was supposed to be kind of like a psychic force, which which draws incredibly from Forbidden Planet. You guys, you know, it's been nicer lately. And in Wisconsin, you never quite know when winter is going to be in, but it's been nice for like four days in a row. And I'm like, if sunnier days are coming, it's time to fuel up. And so I'm going back to my factor meals that no prep, no mess. I want to hit my weight goals before it's time to hit that beach. You've got options like calorie smart, protein plus, keto, 
Factor has these fresh, never frozen meals, dietitian approved guys. And here's the big thing for me, keeping out of the kitchen as much as possible, two minutes and these meals are ready. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, you've always got time. So treat yourself. They have 35 different meals to pick from, 60 add-ons to choose every week. You're always gonna have new stuff to try. Have it whenever you want. It's effortless, guys. So if you'd like to try it yourself, head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off of your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. These other films, and just let me know if you've seen them, Planet of the Vampires? No? Yeah, I have. You have? Yeah. Really good, actually. Looks great. So check it out. An expedition is drawn by a beacon to an alien spacecraft where they find a skeleton of a long-dead pilot. That's a giant skeleton, by the way. I mean, it's right out of that. Mm -hmm. The documentary film uh, Memory which is out there. You can watch that as well. Um, that posits that the film was also based on uh, Mountains of Madness from Lovecraft. It, the terror from beyond space, the creatures killed in an airlock, Queen of Blood, 1966. It's a, a Roger Corman film. Alien distress signal re- received by Earth. Strange sandstorm. They find a dead alien sitting in a chair, bring the alien back to Earth, and it starts attacking the crew. He further took the idea of the crew stranded on an asteroid from his story written by Clifford D. Simak called Junkyard. So, you know, we all take from what we know, and he is not shy about it. He's always said that he's stolen from everybody, essentially. <laughs> but it's not necessarily the the rudimentary ideas, but it's kind of like where it went. And that's largely in part to everybody else that joined yeah. <laughs> after hey. O'Bannon Seriously. and shoots it. But we'll, we'll, we'll get into that here. So... Cut to Ron Schusted, who I just mentioned. He saw Dark Star and thought, hey, look what this guy's done with so little. He saw Genius there. He wanted to pursue him. He was like, I want to make a film with O'Bannon. So they came up with a film called They Bite. Now let me know if this sounds familiar. Awaken. They took on multiple forms, such as a freakish insect dog and wrecked havoc, going from one animal mutation to another. It's based on a freak evolution they see anything mm. organic and they mimic the thing that they've eaten the thing that they sounds eaten. like the thing, thing right yeah. at least carpenter's <laughs> version now no one wanted to fund they bite unfortunately bannon thought there might be interest via roger corman because guess what what kind of films does roger corman make y'all B-movies. B-movies. Low-budget movies. Movies movies where they wouldn't have to get very much money to make it. And he was like, oh, you know what, though? I don't know if he'll go for memory. Maybe we retitle it Star Beast, because that sounds like a Roger Corman picture. So (laughs) Corman-esque. So Corman basically really could only offer a very small amount of money where they would have to finance outside of that. And he actually had thought the script had potential and urged them to go and shop it to bigger studios. I mean, he, I think he ended up offering them like $100,000 or something. And they were like, you've got wow. to fund, get more financiers and all that kind of stuff to make it. And they thought, you know, Abandon and Schuster were like, we need $750,000 to make this. So that's not going to happen. And think about it. They were thinking they could make the film on $750,000. <laughs> like, that's wild. They could, but... <laughs> I mean, yeah, you could. I don't know what you get. Something akin to, you know, Plan 9 from Outer Space or, you know, far less than that, right? Forbidden World. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
O'Bannon is then offered at the time to work on Yarodowski's Dune. Gary Kurtz phones him up about this film called Star Wars and offers him a job, but they can't give him what Yarodowski is paying. So O'Bannon's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do Star Wars. I'll take this nebulous Dune project overseas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I can't even say this is a mistake because, I mean, these things kind of had to happen for us to get this film. But uh, right. so has anybody seen Yarodowski's Dune, the documentary? Oh, it's fucking great. It's it's really, really interesting. Uh, and and honestly, it's really the reason why, if Dark Star is a reason, this is definitely a reason why we get Alien. So check this out. Other people that hop on the project, Chris Foss. And Mobius. Hell, Salvador Dali was mm-hmm. cast in the film as the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, which is the Christopher Walken character, if you've seen the trailer from the new film that's coming out, Dune 2. It was actually Dali that suggested Giger for the visuals on Dune, and we'll get into that when we get into those sections. But it was also Abandon's introduction to him as well. Now, maybe we could cue some ominous music here. Because a dark presence is among us. Enter Dino De Laurentiis. Dino. That's right, Dino. Dino, he wants Dune for himself. But Frank Herbert will not sell to him. Now, Dino starts talking trash, so no one will buy Yarodowski's project. So the outlook's not great for O'Bannon. I mean, Dune's postponed indefinitely, which is very sad. Go watch that documentary. It's very, very cool. Very cool ideas. It's it's fucking insane when you like. I mean, it's just it. What the best thing about the documentary is just kind of shaking your head at like, God, we really did live in an era where art was prioritized in a way. I mean, you mentioned Dali, but like Dali wanted to be the highest paid actor in the history of film, oh, and his yeah. his fee was a hundred thousand dollars a minute. <laughs> like, Whoa! Yeah, like like for for on screen minutes and stuff. So it's just. I wonder why studios weren't like keen on green lighting (laughs) his project. But it it does make you, it makes you kind of pine for like the days when like that type of stuff was prioritized over say, oh, let's do, let's do $200 million at like making sure this effects house can turn this green screen footage into something, you know, interesting. (laughs) At the same time, it also shows the access of it, which we, you know, Michael Cimino and everything else that went into it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely watch it. I even if you don't even like Dune, which I, I'm not a huge Dune fan, but I, I found the documentary just really fascinating to kind of see a different era. Yeah, one we'll never get back to, <laughs> probably ever. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, he also did El Topo and the mm-hmm. the and the Holy Mountain, and I I haven't seen those films, but I've now having seen a lot of footage from them from the documentary, very interested in seeing those films and. Yeah, it, it was very much like, it, it's so interesting to see, at, especially at that time, the movies that were being made not in the U.S. <laughs> and the movies being made here. And people were taking wild chances and stuff that was way ahead of its time, at least in the States, right? <laughs> Eventually, yeah. some of that would maybe make its way here. But sometimes I think film is absolutely more perceived as a... A different kind of art overseas versus here, where it's very perfunctory in, in certain ways. But look, they spend $2 million and Dune vanishes. Geiger never paid for his work. O'Bannon stands six months later with nothing. He's moved overseas, doesn't have anything, a penny to his name. So he comes back and he's like, 
knocking on Ron Schusett's door like, uh, can I stay with you for a little while? And of course, Schusett's like, yes, because like he loves a van and wants to work with them. They set up shop in his apartment and start going back and revisiting They Bite and rework some of the memory ideas from They Bite into that. So they decide to settle for basically a man in a rubber suit, even though they didn't want to do that initially, because they thought maybe someone will buy it if it's just an easier process and it's not like this like nebulous creature, right? So they start writing dialogue for the film. And this is the kind of weirdest, but also kind of the most perfect way of coming up with the name of the film. He just came across the word alien and liked it. So he was like, Oh yeah, let's just let's just name the film Alien instead. Like that's it. It wasn't like some complicated thing or some random thing. I also heard that like it was just popping up so much. Like it was like the word exactly. that was in the script yeah. the most. And they yeah. just kept calling yeah. it like the aliens. So they're like, all right, just call it alien. Let's just call it alien. <laughs> and I think it all speak. It it's interesting just hearing uh, all this background because it is this really interesting convergence of. I'm hesitant to use this term, but high art and low culture yeah. a little bit. Like you have, yeah. you have like, you know, the, I know Roger Corman at work on the movie, but these people who were kind of in his stable and even Dan O'Bannon, who in many ways is very intellectual, very smart, but also loved trash and loved really filthy, gross stuff. And you have them teaming up with, you know, a Swiss surrealist and Giger and even Ridley Scott, who at that point was more known as like an art house director, just from these two movies. And I don't think that any of that was planned. I don't think it was like, Oh, we're going to meld these, these things. But I think the result of it is, is you get something that is intellectually stimulating and leaves all this room for interpretation. But then also it does deliver on visceral thrills. I think the fact that they are like, yeah, just call it alien is kind of a testament to that. Like there was this weird, not taking anything too preciously as we're going along. Which is just interesting is like if you watch the movie, that's not how I would have thought the process would go. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting hearing all this recited back. Absolutely. It is that thing where it's like, I don't think most of the people working on this wanted to work with each other in one way, shape, or form. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. In one way, shape, or form. And, and that, but honestly, and this is, I don't love saying, hey, this is how things should work because who wants to work with people you don't like to work with? I mean, we certainly all like to work with each other and. I think this is good. Maybe we should throw in some people we hate so that we can make this some <laughs> Keep great, it spicy. great yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're all outsiders though. Like, like these are all like outsider thinkers and, you know, and so it makes sense that they would all kind of converge, whether they're outsider yeah. artists, outsider mm. filmmakers, they're all thinking about their craft in different ways. So when you mix that all together, like, man, this, I guess yeah. this is what happens. <laughs> Looking back on this film, I always like, oh yeah, Dan O'Bannon, he's in this. Uh, you know, he's involved in this. And I absolutely just didn't know that it was, this kind of feels like the perfect example of like what happens when someone gets an idea in Hollywood and they take it to oh, another yeah. level. Like you yeah. see that any movie that ever takes place in Hollywood and they try to have, you know, you always have the screenwriter that's this like really, you know, wild intellectual creative that's like tugging at his heartstrings about what he created. Like this is, it all feels like this is, it's indebted to this because O'Bannon just does feel sort of like this, hey, I had this genius idea. And then as as you know, you hinted at earlier, it's like, yeah, but it's been layered to death by folks that have really added depth to this this story. But yeah. the guy the guy who created the, it was the genesis of this all is still acting like he's the only one that's really did everything on it. It just it's just a, it feels like such a classic Hollywood story when yeah. you look at this. But like, I mean, he brought Giger in, right, which I'm sure we'll talk about and it's just I don't Again, know if you can it, underestimate the... Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. No, Rachel, you're right. I mean, it's really difficult because, and I think Ridley Scott's big on that too, which we'll get to in a second, but the fact that he, they could have just like said, all right, O'Bannon, she said like, bye. But they, he really was like, no, nah, I want these guys around. <laughs> so they were like kind of around all the time and, and, and still getting their input in, even though the script had moved far, far and away from the original idea, kind of. I mean, the original idea always kind of stayed the same. And I think that's why they had such a good fight when they were fighting for, you know, their credits, their names in the credits and whatnot. It is wild too, because it, it, this feels a lot like a Fleetwood Mac situation, which is mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you have so many people and so many creators with so many different ideas and you have just obdurate men like... There's Daniel so much Bannon. stubbornness on this. Oh, absolutely. Like, so they're like, stubborn. <laughs> I mean, we'll get, I guess we'll get to the parts well, where they make changes. Right now, All right, right okay. now, Mike. All so, right. yeah. So <laughs> basically their friend, Mark Haggard, is like, hey, I can, I can sell this thing goes to Brandywine Productions and makes a negotiation. And they, they have a first look deal with Fox. And that's where we get Walter Hill, oh, yeah. David Geiler, and Gordon Carroll. Now, mm-hmm. Walter Hill, known at this point for writing the screenplays for Getaway, The Drowning Pool. He directed Hard Time and is getting ready to direct The Driver. Yeah, Geiler is following in his father's footsteps who directed a ton of television, like Man from Uncle and Fun with Dick and Jane and stuff like that. And Gordon Carroll was a producer for films like Cool Hand Luke. So this is, you know, like a legit team. And they all thought the script was garbage. (laughs) (laughs) So they really didn't like it. They thought it was kind of schlocky. They thought, I mean, the the, the core idea they were interested in. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, basically Hill was like, David... Keep reading because there's this scene that stood out to me. Just keep going and, and, and let me know what you think, you know, once you get there. What what scene do you think that was, y'all? I guess the chestburster. Chestburster, yeah, that's a scene. Uh, I was going to say the, the scene where they're just like eating on the table. <laughs> the scene where they're just chatting. Drinking coffee and smoking about, cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Like, look at this revolutionary scene. I've always wanted to work on an Altman film. <laughs> Uh, they probably would be interested in that because they were the ones responsible for more of that dialogue actually uh but yes it was the chestburster sequence i i don't and it's really funny because the way people talk about this sequence is like as if it had really never been done before and i really racked my brain like this really the first time that anyone's ever done something where something popped out of someone's chest i mean there's tons of science fiction films before this but they really didn't do this kind of idea, you know? So that's really wild that that's kind of the first time that that really came to to fruition, you know? And, and no wonder everybody was so obsessed with it, Mike. Well, just, you know, I know I've been already kind of crapping on O'Bannon a little bit, but I it, the idea of it is incredible because, you know, yeah. as especially nowadays where ideas are uh, few and far between, at least new ones, I would say that, you look at what he was able to bring to the table beyond the characters and obviously beyond the dialogue, the idea and what you can build upon it. Like it's, it's not a surprise to see that Hill out of all people who was really big on ideas, he was able to see like, Oh, okay, there's something here. We could, there's a seed at least for us to build around mm. because the, ge- right. the, the, you know, just the, the Genesis <laughs> of what you're able to do with that and the mythos of the alien, like, I mean, that's the franchise. Like, so O'Bannon did create the franchise in that sense. I just think that, you know, as we'll discuss in just a moment, but like 
the the surrounding tissue of it all. I just don't know if I'd credit to him as much, I just, but the idea itself is there. And that is arguably the hardest part. So you're absolutely right, Mike, because like Hill and Geiler didn't like any of the allusions to the ancient alien races, pyramids, the octopus monster that was originally in there. stuff you'll hear later when we kind of run through the script. They, they call O'Bannon and Shusiden and, and to say, okay, like we'll, we'll make a deal. It takes several months to make the deal, but Geiler and Carol are really the drivers of the film, like Mike was saying, you know, uh, attempting to flesh it out and give it more of like high drama, high stakes, bigger budget, way more than O'Bannon and Shusit were eyeing initially. They take it to Fox again. They turn it down again. The first time was when, you know, O'Bannon brought the, the low budget version to them. They just felt it was too risky. Hill began to take over the reins on rewrites because Geiler was truly unimpressed with the initial first draft. So Hill was impressed that Dan and Ron had done the heavy lifting with, again, another twist and something that I came up with was that you cannot kill it without hurting yourself or the ship. So Geiler references at one point that the studio was making Julia and The Turning Point. And these movies starred Jane Fonda, Vanessa Redgrave, Shirley MacLaine, and Anne Bancroft. The, those films were female-focused pictures, and they felt like they would get, quote-unquote, points if they mm. changed a character <laughs> to a female. Now, I have to say, in the original draft of memory, in the original script, it does say that all the sexes are interchangeable. It could, you know, it could be anybody, but I think, it is, I think the whole thing's read as men. So that's why they were like, oh, well, if you change this one character... So that's just that interesting to me that, you know, Hill and Geiler kind of come in and they start really turning it into what we now know as Alien. Yeah. I mean, and it's wild. We'll get to the script in a little bit and you'll see how drastically different it is. But on the other side of the track enters Ridley Scott, who's worked mostly in commercials, as Dan said, but he had just made a film called The Duelists. Has anyone seen The Duelists? No, I want to. That it's after really good. Oh, you, oh, you've seen it. Yeah, yeah, it's a slow burn period piece, and it's, it's Harvey Keitel and Carradine, Keith Carradine, and oh, it's Carradine. just about this duel. And then the, the, he gets challenged to a duel, and then it's just like like they just keep running into each other over all these periods of time, and they keep like picking up the duel again, but then one of them survives or the other one survives, and it's like this long ass duel. Basically, it's really kind of like the scope of it is cool, and the dread and the the sense of fear is there. Yeah. So I can see why they were kind of like, oh, maybe maybe this guy could do it um, just from the way that he's shooting things or whatnot. But that film flopped in the States. Did good in Europe, but flopped here. There's an interview with Ridley Scott in the Rensselaer book where he talks about Stanley Kubrick being the only director that everyone was looking to in amazement and like attempting to make work just like him. Which I, it's kind of cool to see that happen, like because I feel like that that did happen with Ridley at one point. Like after Gladiator, every movie was making action sequences like that and filmed right. in that way, in that kind of dull, gray, quick, like fast motion camera, were you know like gritty, and so it's kind of cool to see like him on the flip side and people are trying to emulate his like direction in that. Back to Walter Hill, he's shopping a second draft. He's interested now in directing Alien and Fox didn't want to get in bed with Brandywine Productions. They just, they had already sunk 11 million into the visual effects for Star Wars, which they were predicting would be a failure. 
He'll create, he'll credits Alan Ladd basically for getting the thing greenlit eventually. They, I think they credit it to seeing early screenings, early viewings of Star Wars. And they mm-hmm. were kind of like, oh, we might have like a hit on our hands actually. Yeah, we need, so we need to hop were, on this train. <laughs> exactly. So they were like science fiction, science fiction. Who's doing science fiction? Oh, yeah, Alien. So... They're sitting around waiting for Star Wars to do, and did did Star Wars do well, y'all? I think it's gonna yeah, be fine. Minor hit. Yeah. <laughs> it's kinda yeah, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> so So Ridley's got sitting here. Star Wars is out, riddled with anxiety, having just seen the second science fiction film to like move him. <laughs> Genuinely wowed by what George was able to accomplish. They continue to work on this thing with all of this weight on them now, because now it's like, Oh, now we have the backing of the studio. They want this science fiction film possibly on the same tier, if not, you know, on some level as star Wars, things just get slowed down because it becomes what O'Bannon was calling committee filmmaking. He writes, they said the problem with money men is that a lot of them don't care about making good films and don't understand movies yet. They insist that you do it their way, which personally I found strange because I've never heard of that in the film industry before. Have you guys <laughs> heard of that where it's the, the studio gets involved and they don't know how to make movies, but Weird. they say you have to do this. You have to have this person. It has to have this sex scene. Mm. No, never. I mean, it doesn't happen ever. I mean, you look at a guy like Bob Iger and he definitely doesn't have his fingers on know, Definitely doesn't have a committee that looks over everything and makes sure, you know, everything's, every, everything's checked. I don't blame them though, because like when you think about the genre itself, where it was at, like ahead of star Wars, it's pretty rough. And <laughs> those that are really, you know, solid, they're very hyper intellectual films that I don't think were necessarily connecting you know, with the broader populace uh, that you get like stuff like Soylent Green, obviously Westworld, things like uh, what Logan's the Solaris Run. Out Solaris, Solaris, Solaris is earlier on. Like the opposite yeah, Logan's Logan. Run. Yeah. yeah, Logan's Run. But by then, you're just like, you're already getting like, what, the fifth or the fourth fucking Planet of the Apes movie in the early 70s? I mean, so it's not like there really isn't a star. Like, there isn't that sort of. I mean, at that point, it's mostly like very hardcore genre stuff or dramas yeah. that are actually like really hard hitting. I mean, and Close that's what makes this era amazing. Yet? It was 77. So there was, okay. it was right before that they were able to, you know, that changes the game the next year. 77 really does change the game when you think about it. So mm-hmm. it's like, I could see them seeing the script and be like, oh, great. We're going to invest in another movie that will get the, the weird crowd at the, the lunchroom <laughs> excited. <laughs> like, it's, uh, it's funny too, because when y'all mentioned before, oh, oh yeah, we had to settle for it being a man in a rubber suit. I don't even think of Alien as being a man in a rubber suit movie, no. even though it's literally Never, a yeah. man in a rubber suit movie. No. So yeah, if you are a producer and you're reading that on paper, okay, mm-hmm. Dan O'Bannon, who's he worked with? The script has this one scene, but it's kind of grotesque and just a little schlocky. Oh, and it's going to have a guy dressed up like an alien. Yeah, I mean, on paper, it... Mm-hmm. probably is going to sound like it's just a, another piece of shit. Not that the, I mean, I love all those other movies, but you know what I mean? That it's not going to be taken so seriously. Well, yeah, think about like, this way. Like, I mean, it's, it's what, so seven, where, where are you at in the timeline? 76? October maybe? 31st, 1977. Ooh, wow. Halloween. Okay. So the, Jimmy film, the film is officially party. greenlit at this <laughs> point. Next year, yeah. next year. I mean, honestly, it's not surprising that like the hook of this is the horror element. Because horror is successful that by then. I mean, right. not nearly as where it will be in like the next year or two, but the fact that The Exorcist was already a thing, The Omen was already a thing, 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre was already a thing. I think they probably were like, oh, this is grotesque, gory horror. Maybe we could lean on that over the science so, fiction element, yeah. you know? Yeah, so check it out. So once uh, once Ridley Scott comes on board, he's like, hey, oh, Bannon, Shuset, like, I'm not familiar with, like, the horror genre. Pick out the best horror films you've got and let's arrange screenings at Fox. So they line up. Invasion oh. of the Body Snatchers, 56. Night of Living Dead, 68. Psycho. Abandon shows him Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which Mike and I were talking about the other day. And he's like floored by Texas Chainsaw and genuinely like shocked. And he said, the film has to be like that, but better. <laughs> and he also cited The Exorcist, saying Freegan made it all work. And so Ridley Scott is sitting here, he's like, I, I see science fiction. I know it can be done. I've seen 2001. I've seen Star Wars. I know it can feel real and lived in. I want to make that movie that feels like that and is executed in a way that feels real and visceral, which is exactly the guy you want behind the director's chair. But check it out. Initially, Walter Hill was attached, right? Yeah. When it got greenlit, he was like, Oh, actually, you know, I'm not really in, in love with the idea, and uh, <laughs> I, I got to go do some other stuff. You know, I got to work on the Warriors, right? So he, not <laughs> he walks away. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, hey, <laughs> Hill, lean into your strengths, pal. Yeah, I love the Warriors. So he, he leaves, and so they start banding around names like Peter Yates, Jack Clayton, oh. who did like The Innocence and Great Gatsby, Robert Altman, Robert oh. Aldrich. Wait, Altman? For real? Yeah. Altman. <laughs> which would, which literally the whole movie would have just been the sequence at dinner where they're just yeah. kind of chatting and talking over each other. No, I love Altman. But they also Motor, approached motorcycle Spielberg. For some reason. They approached Spielberg. <laughs> and Spielberg said he couldn't do it. He had a prior obligation. I think he was working on 1941. He said, you're crazy if you don't do this because he did love the script, though. And the studio then realized as well again. They were like, oh. Like Spielberg's like, you should really do this. It's got promise. That's cool. What does that do if Spielberg makes this movie though? Because if it's a year after or two years after Close Encounters, does he get shoehorned into that genre forever then? I mean, because he, because Raiders, as we talked about last year, is like the only, I mean, one of his big things with that was that he, you know, Lucas gave it to him because he was kind of on the ropes a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I did, I, I do wonder if like, when you, when I heard about the Spielberg, champion of this movie it did make me wonder if like if he had pivoted into this followed close encounters with this and this was his well this is when they're evil and then well even i don't even know if he does et does he stay does he then do maybe poltergeist instead of even raiders like does he stick into the horror genre exactly like it's there's a real big what if crossroads with this with his career that i i I really just kind of kept digging into and i finally was like all right you need to focus on the movie we're talking about (laughs) so yeah um, i mean scott even really Scott, when they finally went to him, he was like, sorry, y'all, I'm working on Tristan and his old. God. <laughs> I'm making like another period piece that's even more well. strange and kind of futuristic. And that film essentially fell apart over the next couple of months, which, and Scott was simply like, I don't want a lot of time to go by between pictures. I want to be working on something. So he's like, let me go see if Alien's still available. And they were like, yep. <laughs> so <laughs> as soon as it's available, O'Bannon and Shusit like rushed to Ridley and they're like, 
hey, 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 check out all these ideas that we had. We're being pushed out, essentially. <laughs> check out this thing called the Necronomicon, which is great, <laughs> which is uh, like kind of like a, a book by, by Geiger, which, you know, I'm sure you'll go into later, Dan, a little bit, maybe. And he sees it and he says, God, oh my God, that's it. I, I, I don't believe it. Like, that's it. If we can build that, that's the alien. And so that's how that worked out. So while casting is being completed, sets are being constructed, Hill and Geiler almost have the completed script. They're like doing endless polishing. They're gearing up for production. The actors, once on board, start having frequent sessions with Scott over the dialogue, which is why it's so candid and cool. They made it way more conversational. Two days before filming, they have completed the main bridge and people, once again, the studio is like wowed by that. So like the people are kind of put at ease and then they start getting into production. So before we walk into the production, which is much shorter than <laughs> the history of this, but I want to go through the original memory script, which is very brief and, and just kind of run through those different drafts. And so you can see how this became alien, right? So the original screenplay by Dan O'Bannon and Ron Shusett, you had, these are the names of the crew, okay? Captain <laughs> Chaz Standard. Oh, God. Martin Roby, Del Broussard, Sandy Milconis, Jay Faust. Okay? These are comic book names. <laughs> yeah, Ch- was it Chaz? That was Dallas's name, right? Chaz, Chaz, Chaz Standard. Standard. Captain Chaz, Chaz Standard. Standard, okay? I've heard of a Jazz Standard, but a Chaz Standard? <laughs> the spaceship is named the Snark. <laughs> okay. Memory has a secondary component where they find a pyramid near the derelict ship, and the yeah, pyramid that... houses urns. Ooh. And in one of those urns is an octopus-like creature. Now that's very Prometheus, and you'll find yeah. when we get there, they pull on a lot of these early ideas that they did not go with for Prometheus and Covenant. They kept the pyramid in there all the way up until shooting, and just consolidated it into the ship because it was just too expensive. That's right. So there's a sequence where the crew from They Bite are assaulted on a plane by gremlins. And she said, it was like, hey, like take that scene and, and put it in the end. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. The, the gremlins from gremlins, yeah. Um, stealing again. Stealing again, Dan. No. On that, in this version, they decide to load the lifeboat with explosives and lure the creature onto the lifeboat. The kill me sequence with, with the captain is in the memory script, the mm. very, very original. It, and it ends with this sign-off. So it looks like I'll make it back to the colonies on schedule after all. I should be in, to the frontier in another 250 years or so. And with a little luck, the network will pick me up. I'm not as rich as I was a couple of days ago, but I'm not exactly broke either. Incidentally, I did manage to salvage one souvenir out of the whole mess. And he picks up an alien skull uh. and <laughs> puts himself... And the cat into deep freeze. And it says, as the snark two drifts past camera, we suddenly see a spore pod is adhered to the underbelly of the craft. Dun, dun, dun. Wait, is Jonesy <laughs> so in the like, original script? Like the cat's been there since yeah, the beginning? Yeah, the, the, the cat is, but it, it's not named Jones yet. Okay. So It's named Chaz Standard, actually. <laughs> Fuzzball. <the> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah Fuzzball. exactly. Okay, now enter Walter Hill. And David Geiler in 76, 77, they change all of the names and to, you know, everything we know today, <laughs> basically. 
Parker, right. Ash, you know, all those things. The ship was originally called the Snark, now it's called the Leviathan. Right. They rewrite a lot of the script in general. They just felt like it was stealing too many elements from 2001 and all this stuff. Uh, oh, also, though, Hill's version of Mother was sassier and more, like, human-like. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Yeah. Like Star Trek. Maybe, well, like making exactly. jokes. Yeah, stuff. kind <laughs> of, yeah. Parker and Dallas are in a gay relationship. <laughs> Ripley and Ash are in a relationship of some sort. Yeah, really. More of, like, a kind of, like, a, you know, they're just, like, banging. Cash. <laughs> they're just <laughs> banging. Yeah, yeah. The Brett character's name is Hunter at the time, and it's Dallas, Parker, and Hunter that would go on the egg hunt. There's no more pyramid, but now it's a metropolis called the Red City. Boy. And Dallas is the one that gets victim to the facehugger. Mother lets them in the ship and not Ash when they come back with the facehugger. And Ripley dismantles the mother computer, much like 2001. So you can see it's like already changed drastically and the names and they decide, oh, we want to make like the crew a work working class like truckers in space right that's where we get that term from like they kept this relationship between dallas and now ripley instead of the parker and dallas they dropped that idea they named the ship nostromo you know basically over the next year as they're doing the countless rewrites it starts to fully fully become much more a walter hill and geiler script in my opinion than a dan o'bannon ron schusset they they honestly wanted to get rid of all the science fiction stuff. The, the alien that they were going to find was going to be like an Earth alien, like an like an old spaceship from Earth that crash lands, kind of like Sphere a little bit. This reads like the like a good version of the movie The Player, where you know Robert Alton, which ironically a Robert Alton movie, <laughs> yeah, and just had the idea that you know the screenwriter dies immediately in Hollywood. It's just like yeah, no, you have no role in this. You just give us this, this little DNA and then we'll run with it. And usually it's you know like actually instead of the you know this this metaphor about the family drama, why don't we change this to uh, you know two hot leads in a, you know a thing like that, that's what they usually you know they'll they'll twist it around and just t- totally make it something else that's that's not the origin at all whereas with this it's like this is actually like the good example of like here let's take a an idea that's wedged between pretty awful ideas and turn it into fucking gold and it's like it's it's like this weird sort of every now and then the producers in the studios get it right right yeah and i think this is a perfect case of that and I just, I keep looking and while reading it, especially in the Rensler book, it just felt like O'Bannon was that sort of character that is constantly like, Hey, uh, can I, can I go in the, you know, the daily room? And they're like, uh, no, yeah, sure. Uh, actually, uh, why don't you stay right here? And they like, close the door. And like, oh, at like one point, closet. <laughs> and then like at one point, like they're, I remember even reading that like that he had seen a script with Just Hill and Geiler's name on it. He's like, oh, sorry, you weren't supposed to see that. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like this literally feels like the player or like, you know, something like adaptation or something like that. There's another comedy that's coming to mind. I can't think of it right now. But it, it, it but it, it's so staggering to see like, yeah, it really did work out for the best. Like and I, that never happens. That never fucking well, happens. It kind of, I mean, we were just talked about Big Trouble. It kind of happened with that too, which is interesting that it's also yeah. a Carpenter thing. I yeah. thought at first he meant Big Trouble, like the Tim Allen movie. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Wait, why would your head go straight to that movie? Is that the one with like the, jo- Dennis Jonathan Taylor Thomas? No, that's... No, that's... Uh, that's Dennis Freeman, right? 
Oh, it's, well, uh, right? Big Trouble's like the South Florida. That's what uh, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dennis Freeman's on that. Yeah, he's At first, I'm like, oh, was that supposed to be awesome originally? And then, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, you don't no, know no the history. You don't know the, the, there's a whole Rensler book about that, too. <laughs> what if, Big Trouble. <laughs> what if, how, how wild would it have been if, you know, Hill's like, hey, I got a good friend. His name's uh, John. And O'Ban's like, who, which, which John? And they're like, uh, well, he's, you know, he's done some scripting uh, for a bit. Uh, you've heard him, right? John Carpenter, you worked with him on Dark Star. And he's just like, O'Ban just like fucking loses his mind. Like, it's just like. I gotta say, O'Ban, I'm not sure. O'Ban is no longer with us, sadly, yeah. but I'm surprised he didn't die during this, during this, because <laughs> I know they ran him through the fucking yeah. mud yeah. hard. I mean, I would have just. I, it, honestly, reading this whole thing made me never want to make a movie ever. I never want to be in a situation where my idea is taken away from me so much so that they pretend like I almost wasn't even involved. Yeah, that's the thing that kills me about it. Like, it, it's fine to change the idea and do that stuff, but to not, not even pretend to give credit to the person that brought the idea to the table is like yeah. maddening. It, it reminds maddening. me of that "Don't Worry, Darling" movie that came out like last year or whatever, mm-hmm. which I had a hard time getting through and when they interviewed Olivia Wilde about it, cause I think they got the script off of the blacklist, the screenwriting database site. And she did give the screenwriters credit name wise, but she said, Oh, when I read it, it was a, almost like a really good piece of IP, but it was the first movie and I knew I could do whatever I wanted <laughs> with it. Was, it, was, it was, I'm wow. paraphrasing, but it was something, it was some, I saw a lot of screenwriters being like, wow, this is like the douchiest thing. And, and then Eesh. people kept being like, well, they got paid and they're no, it's not about the money. It's about like how you're looking at these people and how you're talking yeah. about them. Yeah. Like good luck. Yeah. Like, like having writers go out there and do this when all they do is get like shit on and like the idea is, Oh, here, we'll pay you but we're not actually going to pay you what it's any 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 proceeds or anything that's going to make or all that stuff's buried and and points and all this crap like uh it's it's just i can't believe you can't believe anything gets made worth like any anything i will say at least o'bannon i did take solace the fact that i mean look alien is amazing and he got Mm -hmm. a lot of credit for it eventually and he did go i mean we probably wouldn't have return of the living dead we probably wouldn't get a lot of his other projects later i i I do like that he was able to leverage it into a legacy for himself um which i don't know if that'll be the case for the don't worry darling guys or not (laughs) yeah i I just well I've, i've always just wondered why the split ever happened with like dark star after carpenter and mo bannon because and it totally makes sense after doing the research because it's like he got so upset that we got Carpenter no credit, got, right? Yeah, or like but no then, co-directing credit. Yeah, and then you, you know, you, you get a band a, named after his character, <laughs> Pinback. Right? Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah so there but, you go. But you read this and you're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, sorry, I don't mean to like be so such a, a, a downer, but like speaking of downer, like two or three people that, part of this production that were incredible Debbie Downers. And you're like, you, you listen to their responses and reactions to some of the creative decisions. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, no, these are great ideas. Like, you know, because he wasn't even crazy about the Ash edition. And it's just like, what? Yeah. Like, it's, it's just fucking nuts. I, I don't know. So I, there's a lot I learned from other productions that, that he was tagged to that I, that made a little bit more sense when you look at the context here. Cause it's not just one person saying these things. It's like multiple people at that point. So, it, you know, yeah, it's tough. I mean, again, it's like you, you, you want to believe that when you're in these situations, you will be open to other people's ideas and stuff like that. But because people are so like just hard headed in this atmosphere, you really have to just constantly fight for your own stuff. Otherwise it'll never make it. Yeah. In. 
Yeah. And the only reason some of this alien stuff, I mean, the space jockey almost didn't make it in all the way up until the very last few days of shooting. Mm -hmm. I just feel like they were not sold on some of this stuff. And it was all down to money and timing and building sets. And I mean, Ridley Scott, when he came on board in 78, he basically was like, listen, Walter, David, this story is about an old tramp steamer. An intelligent octopus gets on board. Nothing works on the boat. And now they've got to get home and this octopus is trying to kill them. Stop making it this like highbrow, <laughs> you know, which kind of honestly, some of the stuff that we do love, right? There's all the like the blue collar esque oh, stuff, yeah. the stuff that comes through a lot more after you're watching it more. And, you know, just like the, the Parker and, and, and Brett stuff. And my, Mike and I were commenting on that this you know, when we watched it the other day. But it really was like all of these ideas and people kind of punching it out. And it just happened to keep the right amount of good in there, which is wild. The research is very overwhelming for this because you're reading interviews from when the movie came out, which maybe don't quite match up with how people comment on the movie now. Totally. I think Ridley Scott, now that the film is this franchise and it gets into all these themes, he is a little bit more willing to talk about theme and what the movie means and everything. But if you read interviews from when the film came out, I mean, it's exactly what you said, Mac. He's like, no, I don't want to put any meaning on this. It's just meant to be Spartan and visual and visceral, and that's it. And which is interesting because I. I feel like the more um, artful elements of the movie, a lot of them do come from him. And a lot of it's the, the jaws idea, right? That, okay, well we can't, we, we're just going to not show this as much because it's going to look better if we don't. I mean, it's, it comes from a place of practicality rather than visual panache. But when you look at it, when you look at the way he films these death scenes and how the alien looks, it does feel kind of like he's trying to get at something really thematically rich. I mean, we could talk about, the biblical names like Cain mm-hmm. and whatever else. And I, I mean, and once again, I don't think he's going for any, any of that, but it's like you accidentally made something that is thematically very rich, Yeah, which once again, that one of the, one of the few times it actually worked out in everyone's favor. Well, it's like when Romero would be asked about the casting for, you know, Dwayne Jones and night of living, oh, dead. Night of living dead. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, he'd always be like, well, it was never my intention. And I'm like, well, like how do you watch that ending and not see the intentions? <laughs> and it's like in the sixties, in the sixties. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I do always, Take the these quotes with the uh, what is a grain of salt? Is what they say maybe a little pepper, yeah. a, little pe- a, little, a little bit of pepper spice. Like all the sexual stuff in this film, which I'm sure we'll you know we'll talk about at some point. But like, yeah, how do you not see that? And then just the dynamic between Ripley and Ash, and like those gender. Di- it's like how can you not? Like, like I, maybe you didn't, but wow. <laughs> it's kind of weird because honestly, the guy who was the most willing to talk about the film and with that kind of thematic uh, nuance and profundity was O'Bannon, which is funny because yeah. writing wise, he like totally leaned into really not hacky. I just want to say really out there, bizarre kind of sci-fi ideas. But if you read his quotes around the original script, he was talking about, yeah, it was the idea of male rape. It was the idea of getting yeah. impregnated through your face. It, it, it was funny that he was the one talking about that. Yeah. Well, I think because he knew Giger so well, and that was like such an in- integral part of his art. Like, I think he understood yeah. that at a different level than maybe even Scott and everybody involved with it did at first. I think they, and he's a visual effects guy too. So I think he just understands the relationship between image and theme and everything else. But anyway, is it fair that he gets the sole credit for screenplay? I just think it's a little ridiculous. I really like, especially after seeing all the, the, like when it was, when I saw originally in the Rinsler book, it was like, Oh, well it's gonna be like, you know, Hill and Geiler by with story by O'Bannon. I kind of think that's the the fair way to go. I mean, I'm sure it, it was Union. It was probably Guild 
rules, I'm assuming, right? I, I think I they even know. said he wasn't even part of a guild or something like that. I mean, that, that's the thing that's so staggering to me. I just, I don't want to, I'm uh, trying to be haunted. I'm well, like, I'm, I'm in addition. Court, right. I mean, like, I think that it was uh, like kind of awarded. And I think if they had been maybe just kind of honored the original yeah. contract a lot more, maybe he wouldn't have gotten that. And he would have just gotten story or whatever, you know what I mean? But like, they really made it. The, he and Shusa had to really fight hard for those credits, and I mm. think that they were kind of awarded that. Well, Shusa didn't. Day. He's like got the story by, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> so he got fucking shafted. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's yeah. funny because tonight I'm going to hear the stomping again. I'm going to be like, God damn it, my neighbor, and it's just going to be the ghost of Dan O'Bannon with his <laughs> fucking <laughs> bow tie. Wanting, you delete the recording. You took my movie. <laughs> I, I've returned from the dead myself. <laughs> just, and I'm ready to party. Oh, like, God. <laughs> Well, All listen, right. we, we've got to get into the actual production of this, and, and I've just got some bullet points here. But, you know, the filming started in uh, July 3rd, 1978. The Ghost of Abandon is a, a twinkle in our eye. <laughs> He's very much alive <laughs> and on set. John Finch, originally cast as Kane, mm. he takes sick on the first day of shooting. He's just <sighs> really ill and has to leave the production. Shusit and Dan already kept at arm's length. Crew becoming resentful because you have these two dudes here with no role. They're lurking around. <laughs> Meanwhile, getting shoved they're, in the they're closet. The reason this whole thing is happening, you know, <laughs> essentially. But I, it is an unfortunate time for them. I, oh, I do feel. Funny. I do feel. But the cast is having a hell of a time. the The suits that they're in, the spacesuits, are just you know mammoth. They're hot. Cartwright recalls faint, uh, fainting on the 24-foot spaceship, and Scarrett had to, like, rescue her from falling off this thing. They used kids to do some of the forced perspective shooting. They did say that it was, like, 115 degrees on that alien set sometimes. Like, even the kids fainted. (laughs) The kids were fainting. Were they Scott's kids? And Scott's kids. And and honestly, I do feel (laughs) like that's when when Ridley was like, maybe we should poke some holes in these suits, you know? His wife (laughs) is wiping some air. He's been married a few times. I wonder if that's why whoever yeah. that wife's mother is divorced. Them. Oh, <laughs> it like, says that in the divorce papers. It says um, put put kids in 115 degree spacesuits and you almost, them investigate a derelict. You almost, you almost killed our kids, Rids. Um, Rids. How was your day, kids? Rids. Oh, I fainted on set, Dad. Daddy, Daddy put me in a suit designed by some guy named Mobius. And, and, uh, yeah, got really exactly. hot. There was an alien with a penis that had, and he killed me. Yeah, meanwhile, Giger is on set working in all these designs and set backdrops and everything. It was a Swiss bloke. He was dressed all in black and <laughs> creeped me out just by looking at me. <laughs> all right, all right. So check this out. The ship and the entire thing, you had to walk through it to get out. They connected everything, so you really had a feel for the interior of the spacecraft, which I think is so cool as an actor. Super cool. I think that is awesome. So there were times when they were on this set and truly did feel kind of claustrophobic because it wasn't just, oh, I can walk 10 feet and I'm off into the the, whatever, the green room. You had to walk all the way through the ship to get back out, (laughs) essentially, uh, which is awesome. Mike, you were going to say something? Yeah, I got some quotes that I guess I was going to use in great graphics, but I think they're perfect here. Sure. About the set. So, because this will actually minimize that section because considering I went a little over, but I guess he was, he was influenced by, for the sets, he really wanted everything to look real. So mm-hmm. I guess he, he cited Dr. Strangelove 
as one of the, the the movies that he kind of pitched over to them saying like we want he wanted switches like hair he wanted it to look like the b5 cockpit that was in dr strange love and he wanted that military look yeah and then he also wanted to yet have like a nasa 2001 style that looked you know palpable and so the set itself like they really made sure that everything was real in the sense that like functional equipment was there. There were real blinking lights. The, the, the buttons had purposes. So it wasn't just this sort of like thing that the, the people behind the scenes would have to do. Like they actually had some function and pur- purpose to it. The pipe work looked aged. And then some quotes from s- some of the folks here, when they had guests come in, they, they did get lost. Cartwright said that you'd walk down the corridor to the, to the left was the hospital. It was very claustrophobic, which added to the intensity of the place. And I like this one. She, uh, Cartwright also says, the sets were phenomenal. The plant surface was one whole soundstage. Geiger sets were so erotic. Big vaginas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, whole thing yeah. looked like, the whole thing looked like you were in a womb. And then Weaver says, I wish you could have seen the filming on the planet set because it was so fascinating to watch. I took my parents around the set and it was like wandering through some Playboy orgy room. <laughs> there was this huge spaceship with vaginal doors and there were beautiful female bones. They were gulping. Very interesting, very interesting. I thought every actor got up, had breakfast, and went to another planet. It seems so natural to me. And like that comes across in the movie big time. Like it Well, so I does. I think a lot of that was Ron Cobb, who was like the concept artist for all of that. Yeah. And I mean you look at what else he worked on and it makes perfect oh, sense. Conan the Barbarian, Last Starfighter, Running Man, Leviathan. Like this guy had just such an incredible eye for like designing these just large-scale massive worlds and then being able to help construct them yeah he worked on back to the future real he genius came up with <laughs> he was like a time travel consultant for back to the future so he this guy clearly yeah, yeah. He, really ingenuity behind this guy is amazing like cobb's I mean, original artwork for it you know all the the concept designs are really cool yeah. i mean they didn't really go that direction but they were really yeah. kind of you know stoked the imagination right out the gate it's interesting we have with the design and and even I mean maybe this isn't so rare nowadays with films but at least back then you know where they talked about when they started the movie they were going to have Giger try to do everything but it became clear that oh yeah we need three different design elements the ship the Giger did the planet the aliens mm-hmm. and then I'll t- I'll talk about this later on the small alien forms was another guy named Roger Dickin but it, but it gets a little muddy I think him and Giger kind of both take yeah. yeah, he's a little, he, a little he's salty. The other, yeah, he's the other curmudgeon that I have on. <laughs> he's so, no, he, no, I was reading it. He, he's such an asshole when the movie yeah. comes out, too. He's like, it's fine. But, yeah. but anyway. That's uh, <laughs> fine. And, and I, was thinking, I was thinking, too, with... A schmuck. Well, yeah, yeah, he sounds like a <laughs> schmuck. But is he around? I, I should have looked up, but he's, he's probably yeah. dead now. But uh, I was thinking about what you said, too, about the... Even, you know... Brian Kakari saying, oh, yeah, it looked like vaginas. I feel like a lot of times with artists, like George O'Keefe, right? She's always insisting, like, no, my yeah. pangs are not vaginas. I love how Giger is like, oh, yeah. Like, oh, no, he just holds the giant <laughs> dick. The eggs are meant to look like women's pregnant stomachs with vaginas on them. And like, and well, it's and funny know, that, yeah, right away. Like, the changed it. It was like, all right, I'll like, make yeah. it a cross because Catholics will love that. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah like, no, he, I read that he said he that. He knows yeah. exactly well, what so he's he doing. Catholic. <laughs> I, I love that, like, everyone seemed in on the joke a little bit. Like, yeah. even the stars, like, oh, yeah, that's a fucking dick and a pussy. Cool. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. There is a part of me that, that, like, wishes that they just had gone with, like, the pleasure chair and everyone's just fucking, like, getting off in every scene like even the aliens just like it just becomes this whole like pseudo sexual nightmare and just like which i guess alien resurrection kind of leans into but yeah i mean i would have loved that just it's it is kind of wild that they didn't go that that route i mean even the like yardowski's dune 
There's mm-hmm. a there's a bit in the Rinsler book that's talking about they were like tripping on acid, yeah. and he decided to kind of abandon the Herbert, the the text and everything, and just make it like overtly sexual and like really lean into gayer stuff, and just go that route. So when he pivoted to this, it's kind of interesting that they didn't just like full fledged do that. And I, and even though they did, and that's present on the set, I was even watching the movie on Friday, and I was really looking when they're walking through the alien landscape and stuff, because I feel like Veronica Cartwright said that there were a lot of suggestive structures and things on the way to the ship, but I don't, you don't really see that a hundred percent in some of the way that they ended up shooting a lot of it. So I was kind of like wanting to see some of those set pictures as well. Yeah. I looked for, and like Giger said that he, the, when they enter the ship, he built like a full scale relief. Yeah. He obviously didn't build the entire ship. Um, and as you said, they used, yeah. um, Ridley Scott's poor dehydrated children for <laughs> scale actors. But I think the entrance to the ship was way, way bigger than, than you see on film. And I'm, I'm assuming you saw some vaginas and penises there too. Yeah. yeah. It was, it, it seems so chaotic too, based on what I'm reading on like the history of the production, because it, I mean, even just down to the set, like Ridley really wanted to do something that was like rear window where he was going to have like the whole ship ready to go, which is kind of what I guess Wes Anderson did with Life Aquatic too, I believe, but they couldn't even do that. And so they, you know, there's, there's this whole, I think like probably like 15 fucking pages in the Rinsler book about just how no one knows what the fuck they want to do. And it's so, it's kind of funny. Like there's some quotes here from the curmudgeon himself, Dickon. <laughs> I mean, he was, he's a fun read. He's a fun he's read. A fun read. Yeah. Dickon was an outspoken loner and had been hesitant about signing on. He'd seen the earlier experiments for the phase three monster quote. Nobody seemed to know what the hell they wanted. I went to about three meetings in London and watched these characters rolling around on the floor. And quite <laughs> frankly, I thought it was a bit Mickey mouse. It was obvious to me that none of this was going to work, but I had to sit around wasting time while everyone else oh, figured wow. it out. <laughs> Yeah. I just love that. I mean, but it's the thing is, it's just like they even down to like coming up the set, they had to create this like little miniature one because like really Scott had been in the United States and then, you know, Seymour and some of the, and there's a female, female assistant. I think it was what, Michael Seymour. They basically were like, uh, all right, we'll, we'll create some sets here while, while we're working on it. And because he was the production designer and he comes back, and he's like, ah, oh, no, this is shit. And then they like go and have to do it all over again. And so they just finally make this small <laughs> paper mache version of the set, which then they go, okay, is this good? Is this good? So then now that we have this, you know, quarter inch scale cardboard model, <laughs> let's go f- and go and build it from there. And it, you know, somehow it worked. It's like the efficiency of this set it's, I just don't know how it happened because it just, no. no, no one had any idea. They just kept saying, well, Ridley Scott just kept saying, build me more, build me more sets. Uh-huh. Let's shoot this. Let's shoot this. Let's shoot this. And they had people on the set basically saying, no, don't build that. Let's tear that down. So I don't know how we got any of the footage we ended up getting, to be honest, at the end of the day. And on top of that, this is Ridley Scott's second film. Yeah. Mostly had done commercials before this. And is like behind every camera. He's shooting everything himself. The costumer said that really had a camera for a head. You know, he always knew where to put the shots. Now, Derek Van Lent, who's the cinematographer on it, said that he covered a lot of the tighter shots and attempted to light what he could, (laughs) but that it was incredibly claustrophobic and that Ridley really was shooting everything. I mean, the guy went back in post-production and reshot 
almost all of the miniature stuff yeah. that had been shot during while he was filming all of the cast and the real stuff during you know not the real stuff but you know shooting the actual live actors and went back and 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 filmed all that because he wanted his eye on it his vision and for it to match up i mean that's just insane when I, I think too, because I think that was almost this beta version of how Ridley Scott makes films now. Because if you read about actors talking about his sets, he just has three cameras going at all times, which he can afford to do now. Right, right. What he always says is that the setup takes forever, right? Like the the kind of um, getting the shots ready and getting everyone in place takes longer than usual. But once you have it ready, he's like, you do one or two takes and you're done because you have all this coverage. I don't think he was doing that here because they probably just didn't have the budget and he wasn't doing that yet. But even hearing hearing how he's kind of doing that, but just like one camera at a time <laughs> makes sense because I feel like it predicts where he, his filmmaking technique would eventually go. Yeah. Apparently O'Bannon at this point is a wreck. Mm-hmm. He just can't oh. handle it anymore. So he, <laughs> he leaves the, the shoot early. Leave his beard and stuff. I, cause I haven't seen and any I, I like, picture. Like I don't think, he, I think like, oh. he was like no beard at this point. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I, I can't even imagine what a mixed bag of emotions that is, but he was like, I, I just can't handle it anymore. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'll, you know, I, I, he's killing himself. Right. And, and, and the, all, all the while he's got this, this stomach issue, right. This, this issue that he's been having for the entire time, which is, well, we'll get into that later. I don't want to steal anybody's thunder. So he's finally off, off, off the set. There's like this turmoil behind the scenes with the art department. You guys have been talking about, mm-hmm. Dan says, you know, and said that Ridley want, wanted to keep the monster in shadows largely because then, you know, you can't really tell if it's any good or not, you know what I mean, whatever. And I think that that was absolutely part of it. But I do love that he, something he did say was that he liked to keep it in different orientations every time you saw it. So you didn't ever really know how the mechanics of it worked until the end. And I, I really think that adds to the mm-hmm. the wonder of the creature. And, you know, you're like, wait. Is it walking? Is it flying? Is it, what is it doing? You know, I I was really kind of taken with that. I like, I like that. Keep your monsters in the shadows, people. We don't want to see them. Our imagination is ultimately way more terrifying. And part of why, I mean, this is from the Necronomicon 4 design. I mean, it's pretty close to the alien. The head looks a little bit more like a cock uh, in in Giger's picture for sure. But I mean, it, it was pretty much like, oh, just do a variation on this. But so th- the head was already going to look like that, but they said a benefit yeah. of that was, oh, when we finally see the head turn to the side, it wasn't going to look like a guy in a suit because like, whoa, how does he have that thing mm-hmm. on him? And we'll talk right. more about the guy who played the alien uh, later on. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. It, it was one of those things in history where, or Hollywood history where I, I still didn't know what it even looked like walking around until I played that fucking game, Alien Isolation. And you're hiding in the locker in that game and then you actually see a xenomorph walking and that scared me to death because we do have oh, yeah. these preconceived notions of how it moves around, namely because we don't really see it. I mean, sure, we're going to get to like Alien 3 and then Aliens when you see them crawling and stuff. But even then, like the idea of it just like stomping around, searching for shit, like that just never came to be. And in, especially in this movie, like I, I still like you made a good point, Mac, when we were watching on Friday that like in the director's cut, when you see the xenomorph hanging on the chain. Oh yeah. Before Brett gets killed. And the audience wouldn't really actually be know what to look for because we really haven't seen anything. And even if you had seen the head, it's not something that you could easily, you know, point out. I mean, that's why the scare at the end 
on the escape pod works so well. I mean, that's and also think about it, Mike. The last time you saw the alien, it was like ten inches tall. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you wouldn't be yeah. thinking it was yeah. like the size it <laughs> yeah. was when it shows up the second time. Yeah. It's funny because in just as I was rewatching the movie, uh, I didn't rewatch the director's cut, but that's the cut I have in the uh, the box of the quadrilogy or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, there's that great shot where you see it hanging in the chains before Brett gets killed. And I was looking for online stills of it. And I'm like, why can't I find it anywhere? And every picture I had was just the chains. And then I realized the alien was in there. Mm -hmm. I just, even having seen it a million times, I couldn't tell what it was. And I love that. Like, that's technically the first time you see the adult alien if you're watching the director's Did you ask Susan where it might be? And then she walked up and she goes, it's right here, you fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) She'll do that in movies a lot. Like, I'll be like, whoa, look at that. Like, the horror. She's like, yeah. She's got like a dry erase marker. She's like circling on. The screen, she, like, hey, she you, always hello? says, if it, if it was a snake, it would have bit you. Huh? It's like it's, it's always on the right yeah, chain. Right. <laughs> yeah, she has a deep knowledge of where where that was. Did Did you all know the Nostromo is originally yellow? No, what? I did because I if you look at aliens, the, or aliens, alien, the illustrated, the illustrated, story, yes, which appeared in Heavy Metal magazine. I think it may have been one of the first high profile cinematic adaptations of a comic. The artwork's great in it. If you look at it, I'm I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure the on the cover no, you're right. you're it's right yellow, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think they're going obviously off the the script for that, uh, mm-hmm. rather than the final cut. Well they went back in the last, you know, few days, like he was like, nah, spray paint it and then reshoot all the exteriors. <laughs> <laughs> it's so wild. Okay. Well we're almost down to the the end here. We're gonna obviously keep going into this in depth. So I don't wanna spend too much time more time on the production, but the last 10 days, uh, the last 15 days, they, they were going to shoot about 15 days worth of stuff in about 10 days. The, uh, and they were shooting right up to the end. Peter Beale literally took the camera out of Ridley's hands and was like, that's it. <laughs> like, we're done. You're done. <laughs> so the film wraps October 21st. And this essentially, we're, we're walking into the reaction of the film. So the first screening of the film was about four hours long. Jesus. The long cut, Alan Ladd says. Good God, give me that cut. I want to see that. That's the Altman cut. It's just the yeah, yeah. breakfast conversations, yeah. Terry Rawlings, the editor, said that they didn't preview it until they were finished with the film. So the, and, the, and that the sound was so bad in the screening that they, they just weren't having it. The, the theater in Dallas, the second screening they did of the actual screening, you know, this is now it's cut down to what it's going to be for the film. They said that the sound worked in that screening. People were screaming, running out of the theater. They said an usher fainted when the robot's head came off. I mean, you just don't get these reactions today. I know. <laughs> Do you think they did? Well, I guess back then they probably weren't faking it, right? Because I feel like a lot of times it's for publicity now when they say that. But I don't I mean, think people he just, were really Maybe he just tripped. <laughs> it trips I mean, and popcorn I goes off. <laughs> I guess I know a lot of folks that aren't like keen on horror films and they they do get really grossed out by stuff like that you know like so i I might believe that big screen big sound yeah maybe yeah did you guys notice that when we see ian home at the breakfast table he's drinking milk like the white is that intentionally thing Uh, yeah yeah right probably right i think it is yeah it probably is like his lifeblood right he hates milk in real life ian home does which is you know wait the, does he really yeah he said he was grossed out by it so that yeah. was oh that's funny like that. he's like is he gonna cover me in it now i have to drink it <laughs> uh, really he's probably like you know why don't you just drink up your milk uh, <laughs> really really, really sitting there whispering into <laughs> his other microphone like more milk more milk <laughs> yeah, <laughs> starts, more starts milk. squeezing his arm and it's like your bones they're gonna fall off of you he's yeah. already thrown up twice i don't Ten care like it. More. i want more milk over there milk milk uh, uh, milk is pretty nasty i'll give you all kinds of milk skim 
two percent whole milk. So check this out. Don't you think that they would have had like a screening for the cast or something? Veronica Cartwright said that she had to buy a ticket for the Egyptian theater where <laughs> they were Veronica doing the screening Cartwright, to, man, like, to see it. First, she thinks she's going to be Ripley, and then she I cannot like, wait to get into buy all a that. Yeah. <laughs> you know who definitely had to buy a ticket? I bet was Dan O'Bannon. <laughs> <laughs> or no, he he probably just you know snuck into the projector's booth like no, he did so for the dailies. No, he <laughs> he tries he to get their door no, sold out. So he's like, but I wrote the movie. They're like, yeah, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. whatever, buddy. <laughs> yeah, they shut it. Mike's joking, but he did sneak into oh, no. the projection booth during wait, the, really? to watch to watch the rushes because yeah. they wouldn't let him in. No, they're like, all right, you're out of here. So, O'Bannon wasn't going to go to the opening of the film. He was just like, no, you know what? I'm not going to go. He was like being defiantly like, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. And then, you know, ends up driving his car around and then ends up finding his way to the theater. And he said, they, they shoe sit and some people were there and they're like, yeah, we got to, you know, come on, come into the theater. So they sit him down. He said, like, he was really like upset. But then he, and then he was like crying and then tore, through the, about halfway through the film, I think he realized he was crying, but he was like happy crying. I think he just realized that, like, I can't was, believe this yeah. thing is as good as it is because he always loved Ridley Scott. And I think he knew that it was in really great hands. I just think the trials and tribulations of the whole process got to him, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I get it. So, I mean, yeah, it sounds stressful. So check this out. Ron Shusitz had a screening. And it was the Academy screening and the two people behind him, like screaming and yelling are Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty. <laughs> How great is the that? Bad boys. Amazing. Did he have a sandwich? Yeah, was he eating? Uh, Nicholson. Oh, wait, wait. They eat a sandwich? <laughs> Nicholson <laughs> like he's in the water. a sandwich while he's eating. <laughs> yeah. Oh, of course, right? <laughs> he probably had that jar of peanut butter he keeps by his bed to keep his stamina it's up a long uh, later on. Yeah. Yeah. Or he was, or he's just basically, you know, forecasting his role in The Departed, and he like pulls out a black dildo from, uh, the, and then like Warren Beatty's like, Wah! he's like, yeah, <laughs> it looks like, like the alien's head, doesn't it? He's <laughs> like, look at this. And, HR like, Giger's like, oh yes, jacket. I don't know how he sounds. Yes, jacket. Does. So <laughs> they might, they might do this stuff in LA still, but I feel like they just don't do it here. But they had like set pieces at the Egyptian theater. They had like yeah, that's so cool. the mother set piece. They had some of the like hallways. They had the space jockey, which someone tried to light on fire because what? they thought it was like the work of the devil. I'm like, this this is the kind of stories you want out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when the movie's like just being screened. God, we lived in such a crazy country back then. <sighs> yeah, it's I mean, people are still setting fire to stuff they think the devil. I'm joking. Today, so. <laughs> it's gotten worse, Mac. <laughs> <laughs> you had this great ad campaign. <laughs> Steve Franklin, Richard Greenberg coming in, doing the poster work, coming up at the log line in space. No one can hear you scream. One of the best. Which is easily yeah. one of the best <laughs> out there. The film grossed $3.5 million in four days, breaking a record at the time. But check this out. And I don't know if you all were aware of this. I certainly was not. Wildly lackluster to bad reviews oh, wow. when this thing rolled out. Yeah, I was not aware until preparing for the episode but i was kind of surprised yeah i mean people saying it was essentially a b movie hidden by money ebert said basically just an intergalactic haunted house thriller i don't know if that's like negative necessarily yeah it's not not wrong wrong. yeah Yeah, he's not wrong 
It said it's a space age horror film reverts to 1950s formula story, but adds stomach churning violence, slime shocks. Still, this is some people's idea of a good time, <laughs> which I feel is our new poll quote. Still, it, this is some people's idea of a good time. <laughs> Halloween is the podcast. So Cronenberg, uh, if you believe it, did not like it either. What? He said that the chest burster was cool or whatever, but wasn't saying anything enough metaphorically. Disagree. <laughs> Ridley said he was just trying to make a movie that would scare people. He said with the duelists, he had forgotten to entertain. He wasn't thinking about the deep-seated themes that should be interwoven into Alien. He said one, one of its strengths, in my opinion, there's enough of that shit as the films go on, right? That, that, that's my opinion. I'm talking now. Yeah. <laughs> there's enough themes and digging into themes and all sorts of shit as it goes on. But this really was, and I think that there are themes there if you're looking for them. I think that's largely due to Walter Hill and Geiler's script. Ta- I think that they were running. I think time. Yeah, and well, yeah, certain yeah, things yeah. have aged, interestingly. And, exactly. and also, too, I mean... The alien, the alien series becomes very thematically rich as we go on. Mm-hmm. But once again, it's all responding to this template that was laid out there, you know. And I, I think that's the mark. Of, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking about theme. I, I like to think about theme a lot in, in what I write. But mm-hmm. I also think there's something to be said for strong visuals and getting a visceral re- reaction from the audience. That's gonna take care of theme no matter what, because if it is effective enough. Yeah, you're gonna have filmmakers that put other metaphors and read into it and put their own spin on it right i mean that's the mark of good art like i I think if if your art's good it's going to take on a theme at some point you know yeah the film ends up making about 81 million and 24 million internationally and it was a big hit but it it was not star wars it was not jaws so weirdly like the studio is kind of bummed however it was, in fact, like the number one priority when it came to VHS release. And this is another thing. We've talked about this multiple times. VHS release of some of these movies takes on a life of its own, you mm-hmm. know? And I just had to feel like as this went on, I mean, this was a, I just remember having the, you know, the, the VHS like at home. We definitely bought it at one point once it became available. And it was just like a, a fixture. It was like constantly being put on all the time. There were also a ton of financial issues afterwards in terms of payouts. Mm. There was a lot of creative bookkeeping, which really shocks us, right? That the studio is creative on that. Yeah, creative bookkeeping. I mean, doesn't it shock you that a big lucrative movie studio (laughs) would hold back proceeds from the artists and not honor deals originally made? Like, it's just like the classic Hollywood uh, trope. Just so bizarre, strange. (laughs) I want to say it's the. Butch Cassidy episode, possibly, of uh, the rewatchables or something. Like, I think as Aaron Sorkin talks about how everyone that was involved in like Butch Cassidy and stuff, when they did those points and all, they got screwed over or something, something similar to that. But it's like even until the 90s, they weren't even getting checks yet. They're like, ah, we're still trying to see, you know, a, a financial return or something like that. And it's just like, what the fucking just absolute scumbags that, that run these places. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. It's just, so, so strange. Look, that's it. The movie's out. We're done. We're through. Any, I mean, I'm sure we're going to continue covering a lot of stuff that maybe we glossed over or missed. I mean, definitely Giger and and all that action. Well, that about wraps it up for the production end of things. So thanks so much for joining us for uh, all of our coverage on Alien. No, I'm just kidding. We have tons more 
coming. But uh, that does it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining us. And stick around. Uh, We'll be airing our next episode on this shortly, where we go into the score, the design, the cast, and just about everything else under the sun. So until then, this is Lieutenant Wolfman Mac signing off. This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>